Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And on this show, we got a bunch to get to. First, we're going to talk about Jimmy Hopkins, uh, formerly trustee of Cape Fear Community College. And then we're going to talk about the efforts to incorporate in Winnebo and what that means and why it looks like it's not going to happen right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, let's get into uh, the issue of Jimmy Hopkins. Yeah, so a uh, quick little rundown as to what we're talking about here. We've covered this in the past, in the, about the past month or so. Uh, Jimmy Hopkins was a uh, veteran on the CFCC, Cape Fear Community College Board of Trustees, for about 11 years. He was unexpectedly removed from the board at the behest of County Chairwoman Julia Olson Bozeman, notified by email, sent a letter basically saying, hey, you're off the board, you missed three unexcused absences. Uh, That's a whole nother thing that we have already waded into. Both uh, Rachel Keith with WHQR and myself have been kind of partnering on these stories. uh, And we've covered all of this. So the question of excused versus unexcused, uh, it's, as I refer to it, legally dubious, this removal. However, Hopkins had hired some, uh, had hired a law firm, a powerful law firm here in, uh, in Wilmington, uh, George Roundtree and uh, Loss. Uh, Roundtree Losey is the firm. Roundtree Yeah, well-respected, um, a long-time firm here. But, uh, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say he, he broke out the legal big guns. Yeah. And it cost him. He actually told us in the short period of time uh, between when we reported on this and, you know, over that, like, week or so, it cost him, like, what, $10,000? Ten grand, something like that. So he hired the, you know, a, a very well-known, strong law firm here, uh, sent a letter, didn't file suit, but sent a letter saying, hey, county, you can't do this. Here's the reasons why. There were all the reasons that Rachel Keith and I had actually outlined in our paper, in our, in our articles, saying, you know, this just doesn't follow state law. Regardless, a week later, after sending that email and hiring and lawyering up, uh, Jimmy Hopkins sent another letter to Bill Cherry, the chairman of the CFCC Board of Trustees, saying, I regret to inform you I resigned. There was a little more to it, but we don't really need to weigh in, wade into it right now. Uh, Port City Daily did an initial report on this story that basically just cited his letter saying he was doing this because he doesn't want to cost the students at CFCC more money because any lawsuit that they have to fight would be coming from, you know, the the funding that could go to the college, which, okay. But there did seem to be more to it than that. And as we found out, there there kind of was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, initially he kind of, first I've just said, it's, it's going to be expensive because you can fight City Hall, but man, it costs you. Mm-hmm. But it also seemed like he recognized a political reality that if he won this case in court, and he, he still maintains that he thinks that he would. He thinks that the county's logic um, just wouldn't pass muster, just wouldn't hold up to state statute. He would still get voted off legitimately through the process outlined at the state level um, because basically his number is up. So mm-hmm. that was, was part of it. But I think he also, it was interesting that he used the opportunity to talk a little bit about some of his concerns. And this this was rare. He... He basically admitted to being a little complacent 
mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's not uncommon for someone to get off a board or to leave an organization and then throw hand grenades. It's it's less common, at least in my experience, to see people say, you know what, I went along with this and I probably shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, he was talking about, um, you know, basically, un, you know, sort of uncontemplated uh, awards of raises to CFCC President Jim Morton. He got two 10% raises over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is now making well over $300,000 a year. Jeez. Um, and again, there's still those lingering concerns about Morton's lack of experience, his lack of um, postgraduate degrees, mm-hmm. um, the fact that there wasn't a job search when he got the gig yeah. uh, a couple years ago. So some of the things Hopkins was saying was that, you know, that seemed problematic, especially, you know, um, he got a, Morton got a much more significant raise percentage-wise than staff did. You know, we're looking at... Um, a lot of people reevaluating their careers as teachers. We're looking at crushing inflation. Um, cost of living is going through the roof. Rent is going through the roof. So everyone at CFCC did get a raise, but Morton got a much bigger raise, and that mm-hmm. sends you know a problematic message for some people. And then there was stuff specifically about the Bank of America building, which he went finally into more detail about some of his questions. So mm-hmm. real quick. Pratt's, if people haven't been playing along at home, what is the Bank of America building thing? All right. So this is the uh, it's a it's a large building right there after the Meadowlark Lemon Bridge, that area on Third Street um, in downtown Wilmington. It used to be Bank of America, uh, hence the name. Uh, But the CFCC approached the county. And this is where, again, things get very uh, hinky that we have a lot of questions still unanswered. Uh, but CFCC eventually approached the county. The county just approved that they would purchase this building and, you know, for the purpose of expanding the college's nursing department, which, again, we need nurses in this community. Um, Across the country, there is a major nursing shortage. Uh, I don't think anybody is really disagreeing that there needs to be some sort of growth within that if we can start cranking out more nurses for the local region everybody is going to be lifted by this. The problem people had with it, though, is the way that this was uh, subversive in the way that it went, that it came about. And I say that because Jimmy Hopkins was the facilities board chair, which is uh, they're in charge of facilities, you know, buildings, purchases, things like that. He had no clue. President Jim Morton went and, you know, kind of made this deal outside of the board of trustees, at least to uh, Hopkins, as well as uh, trustee Ray Funderburg, uh, they've both told us that they didn't know about this in pr- until it was pretty much signed, sealed, delivered. Again, we've gone into all of this in the past. You can read some more of that reporting. But basically, it was a subversive attempt to get this building, and it worked. Yeah, a, a couple things here. One, yeah, it is just very strange that the facilities director or the, the head of the facilities committee wouldn't know about this. And as we've said in the past, there is good reason to keep the intent to purchase a property by the government quiet, mm-hmm. because if it is the if if for example that is the only place that a government facility can go, you're going to trigger a bidding war, and taxpayers ultimately pay for that. Sure, but it is that is why you have closed sessions mm-hmm. for boards for oversight boards, right? So nothing would have prevented the board of trustees from going into closed session and saying, "Hey, we want to buy this property. We're keeping it quiet because we don't want." the aforementioned bidding war, but this is kind of what we're doing. And, you know, governments do that all the time. 
And so the fact that they didn't take that option, and, and CFCC has done that in the past, so I, I don't understand why that didn't happen. I don't think the argument that they wanted to prevent that from happening holds any water unless you're going to openly say, I don't trust mm-hmm. the Board of Trustees. So there was that issue. Um, we asked Hopkins, or, or my colleague Rachel Keith asked Hopkins pretty much point blank, if this was about his role as a broker. Because mm-hmm. when you when you buy and sell large pieces of property, um, it can be very lucrative. Yeah, absolutely. And Jimmy Hopkins is a real estate, uh, he's involved in real estate. I don't know exactly his title, so I'll refrain from saying what exactly he does, but he is in real estate. And that was one of the questions that came up. And the uh, I guess kind of water cooler chatter that we had heard was, oh, you know, he's upset he didn't get this deal. Uh, and he addressed that with, with Rachel and said, if I would have done anything with this deal, it would have been at no cost. I would not have profited from this whatsoever. Um, you have to take people at their word when you know when things are obviously did not happen that way. Um, but you know it could be a completely different investigation had that happened. And I'm not you know alleging that uh, that Jimmy is you know would have done anything other than what he says, but. My point is, you know, we just don't know because that's not how it played out. Yeah, and the other thing I want to say about this is the people who did actually do this transaction, mm-hmm. which is Brian Eckel and um, and Hank Miller of Cape Fear Commercial. Brian Eckel, of course, uh, is a member of the Novant, both local and parent board, mm-hmm. um, and really seems to have been the main impetus for this whole project. His frustration about the nursing situation, he kicked off a series of conversations with UNCW, CFCC. We've talked about that in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hank Miller... Um, Alderman, I believe, uh, Mayor Pro Tem at Wrightsville Beach, who's also the chair of UNCW's Board of Trustees. Mm -hmm. Uh, So well-connected local guys. Um, I want to be very, very clear. We are not suggesting that they were doing anything uncouth here. Um, They put the building under contract. They they presented it to the county. The county could have said yes or no. Uh, We have talked about in the past. We thought it was odd that the county did not do an appraisal first. I understand that that's part of the due diligence period and that mm-hmm. had there been a wild discrepancy between what Eckel basically valued the building at mm-hmm. uh, or what Eckel's deal valued the building at and what the county ended up paying, if there had been like a million dollar gap there, mm-hmm. the county could walk away at no cost. We get all that. Uh, we still think it is odd that the county didn't talk to the public, mm-hmm. that the public hearing was the first time people were hearing about this. It's It's a little difficult for someone to come and make informed commentary when it's sprung on you like that. But just to be clear, we, we're not saying that there's anything shady there. The questions that Hopkins was getting at was, okay, you're buying the building. What next? Because in order to ramp up the nursing program to, you know, put people in here, all the costs aside mm-hmm. of the building, right? So it's it's just shy of $12 million to buy it, somewhere between 14 and $15 million, and that is an estimate, to upfit it. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to put students in it, and you've got to put instructors in it. And there has been no public conversation about exactly how that recruiting will happen, either for students or for teachers, Mm -hmm. and where the money for that will come for those instructors. Because there's a nursing shortage, which means um, nurses are being paid more than ever. And to lure someone away from that career, uh, which is a well-paying career, to a community college where they will probably take a pay cut, almost definitely take a pay cut, you are going to need money you need incentives, signing bonuses, all that stuff. All of that's going to have to come from the county or the state or somewhere. And none of those, discuss- according to Hopkins, had happened. And when we asked the county, it was the same way. They, there was just sort of a nebulous plan. Um, Mark Lanier, who's the assistant to the chancellor uh, at UNCW, mm-hmm. gave a very nice speech 
in front of uh, the county commissioners. But again, didn't say anything concrete about we will provide X dollars. Um, Novant did say they're throwing in two million. But still, a lot of questions about how this will actually work. And apparently Hopkins had those questions for Morton. And Morton didn't, according to Hopkins, Morton didn't really have an answer. Yeah, exactly. And so to kind of wrap this portion of it up, um, the biggest takeaway for me from Hopkins, um, you know, we, as I said, we covered all these things before, but the newest, biggest takeaway for me, you and I actually talked about it when we were doing our final edits on this story. And we kind of said, wait a minute, what is really sticking out to us, at least to me, is the fact that once again, we are getting inside the community college people making allegations of retaliation and toxic environments within the community college's administration. Uh, Jimmy Hopkins called it a uh, pretty much a go-along to get-along board. Basically, they just let Jim Morton do whatever he wants to. Nobody, you know, committee reports aren't being made by committees anymore, he says. They're just tossing it over to uh, the president, which is unusual. Uh, It's an unusual amount of influence and power at that level. Um, so we've seen this in the past. We've reported on it. I have no problem saying that people have called, uh, called the culture toxic and retaliation is rampant. People are scared to speak out. Ray Funderburg has told me that he's talked with faculty and staff that are scared to death to say anything negative about the administration, lest they lose their job. And that is not a, uh, well, obviously it's a toxic place to work. That is not a good thing when you can't make, you know, constructive criticism without fear of losing your job. So uh, that was my biggest takeaway is just once again and once again, the board of trustees, by and large, refuses to even address any of these issues, refuses to acknowledge that these complaints are out there. There are the few that do end up speaking out, Um, as we saw with Mr. Hopkins. He's now off the board. Um, So... It kind of feels like New Hanover County commissioners all over again. The emperor has no clothes. These are allegations that are out there. You gave 20% raises. Now you're making well into six figures. You keep raising this person's salary. And yet everybody that works there says, help us. This is toxic. We are leaving. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people that work there are saying this. And you just keep going along to get along, as Jimmy put it. Yeah, I don't think there's too much more to add. I mean, he he described a couple times where he attempted to go against the grain, um, and I believe he said more or less that he got a pretty chilly reception with that. Uh, And I don't think Hopkins is trying to make himself out as a hero here because, as I said, you know, he he was guilty of it too. Um, And I guess his parting words for the board was to snap out of it Mm -hmm. and to start acting like the oversight board. I mean, we have seen this in the past where a manager – runs the board that oversees them and that is not the way it's supposed to work in, mm-hmm. in government the whatever the oversight board is whether that's a city council or board of commissioners or board of trustees they are in charge and they have one employee and that is you know the president of a college mm-hmm. or a city manager or a county manager and then everyone else works for that person so really they only have one employee they really need to worry about mm-hmm. um so it's not too much to ask for some oversight and for example some conversation before you get 20 percent raise well, that seems like a good time for a break. Uh, we'll be right back, and we're going to talk about the uh, the swampy future town of Winnebo or not. All right. <laughs> Welcome back.
Welcome back to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Prats. And I want to talk about a story you had this week about what could be, but probably won't be, the town of Winnebo. Yeah, this is a interesting one to me, and I typically don't wade into um, Brunswick County for the most part of my coverage, but I do occasionally. That is part of our viewing area. Um, and you know, it is just right across the river, although it's not New Hanover County. Um, this is a request that, from what I can tell, really picked up steam in January of this year, 2022. So it's been almost a year now, um, probably a little bit longer that people in Winnebo have been talking about this. Uh, a request was made to incorporate Winnebo, which is an unincorporated area, unincorporated community in Brunswick County. It is just, I guess that's direction west, southwest of Leland and Belleville. So it's neighboring. Um, but in order to become a municipality, a city, town, uh, I believe there's hamlets and villages. In it's, it's village, city, and town are your options, I believe. Oh, we can't have hamlets. Um, anyways, one of those, uh, if you want to become any sort of municipality, it doesn't really matter what you call yourself. You have to go through a process. The General Assembly essentially has to approve your charter to become a town, but now there are laws, and it, it wasn't always this way from what I can tell from speaking with the treasurer, the state treasurer, Dale Falwell, uh, and listening to the local government commission, the LGC's meeting. Uh, it appears that now state law changed last year, last session perhaps, uh, that requires any attempt to incorporate go through the local government commission, which the LGC oversees things like audits, budgets. Uh, they're basically the grand scale auditors of the state. Um, and I don't mean that in the official term of auditor because that is a position, but that's what they do. They, they oversee yeah, and, finances. And the state auditor uh, actually sits on the LGC. Yes. So yeah. it's, 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 it's all connected. And I think, you know, the, I've looked at this law a little bit, um, and the logic to me seemed to be that when you Talk about incorporating. So here in New Hanover County, we've seen uh, the district of Castle Hayne attempt unsuccessfully mm -hmm. to incorporate. Uh, and in Pender County, we saw uh, Hampstead attempt to incorporate. And it probably will attempt to mm -hmm. again in the future. So one of the, the primary things when you create a town, ex nihilo, out of, out of just unincorporated county, right. is how are you going to pay for stuff? I mean, you're going to have to put city or town hall somewhere. You're going to have to – one of the things you have to do is offer – uh, police, fire, uh, water, or sewer, and if those things aren't there, how do you pay for them? You have to tax people. Yeah, to be just to be clear, you you do have to provide additional services for sure. Um, some of those, I will say, Winnebo already has a volunteer fire department, so things like that. Uh, one of the problems that the uh, Ronald Penny, who is the secretary of the Department of Revenue for the state, um, who also sits on the LGC. One of his questions was, so what are residents living in Winnebo actually going to get if they do incorporate besides higher taxes? Because in order to incorporate, you do have to charge some sort of ad valorem tax, whatever that value might be, uh, to fund your city. And he said, what are people going to get besides higher taxes? And uh, one of the other secretaries for the LGC uh, said, yeah, we don't know. That was one of our biggest questions as well, because right now they're going to be providing water and sewer. If we were to approve this, if they get incorporated, 
they would be providing water sewer through Brunswick County. Mr. Penny said, isn't that where they already get it now? And the response was, yeah. So again, not really getting a whole lot, but besides not offering a whole lot of services to their residents, the concern with fiscal ability to manage and run a small community of less than, I believe it was like around less than 7,000 people, uh, we've seen in Navassa. It is a very difficult situation. The treasurer spoke with me about that situation, which uh, is a whole nother thing. But basically, they have no finance manager. Who is paying these you know, town employees to who's signing the checks? Um, it could be, I, I believe there was a discussion that Navassa could actually come under control of the state treasurer's department to some degree, because it is just financially just is not making sense. So they don't want to give permission to another community to do something like this when they don't have the financial wherewithal to actually create a municipality. So, yeah, basically, when you're when you're creating a town or a village or I hope maybe a hamlet one day (laughs) or a city, you know, you have to tax people. You are basically running a business um, and not a small business. I mean, government is the largest business in North Carolina. The largest employer in the state is the state, followed by the counties. Um, So it's serious business and it's very difficult to disincorporate a town or a city. So once you create it, you're then you're sort of responsible for it. So I understand why the LGC would have an interest in, you know, not saying yes or no automatically, but being involved in those conversations. Um, In this case, I think the conversation might still be going on, but there's another piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with why in the world would you want to pay more taxes if you were already being served? I've I've spoken with people in Winnebago and I haven't talked to anyone who feels like they are underserved by the Brunswick County Sheriff's Office or the, uh, as you pointed out, the Winnebago Volunteer Fire Department. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the issue of water and sewer for some people. Uh, Brunswick County can get pretty rural, so a lot of people are on well water and septic tanks, and that can provide some frustrations. And that's where the issue of Leland comes in. So. In your reporting, you were looking at a Facebook page, the town of Winnebo, the aspirational town of Winnebo. Yes. And people are talking about the fear of being annexed by Leland. This is something we've heard from a lot of people. We, there's a, a long, rich, and occasionally silly history here with the growth of Leland and the, at times, legally questionable efforts Leland has taken to pursue growth. But it's a growing town. Um, they want to build their their property tax base. That's understandable. That's that's what towns are all about. Mm-hmm. And about ten years ago or so, uh, the laws about annexation were changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be easier for towns to basically gobble up property around them. Right. That has become much more difficult. And so, almost all of the parcels and properties that have been added to Leland over the last couple of years have been voluntary. And a lot of these times, these are developments where basically a developer is just saying. You know, I have 400 acres. I would like to join the town. Uh, And that transaction can be pretty simple. Once you have a population, then you have to have a vote and it gets very complicated or Mm -hmm. petition rather. But you have to have uh, a lot of a lot more people get involved. So if a developer just said, you know, I have 400 acres, I am eventually going to build houses. But right now I want to join the town. That's that's simpler. So one of the issues has been um, after another long and occasionally silly saga, uh, Leland ended up acquiring H2GO which was a sanitary district. We really don't have time to go into this history. But basically, a sanitary district is designed to provide water and sewer in unincorporated areas. That's mm-hmm. something usually a town or city does. But if you don't have one nearby and you have a lot, you have a concentration of people that kind of feels like a town but isn't and they mm-hmm. need water and sewer, 
a sanitary district can provide that. So the question became, when Leland absorbed this, can they entice people using the, the opportunity to have water and sewer instead of saying, a sanit- instead of like a septic tank and well water, uh, can they use the enticement of that, those utilities to force people mm-hmm. to annex into the town? That was sort of an open question. It seemed to be the Leland's point of view that yes, they could do this, Recently, there were two attempts, um, first from uh, State Rep. Frank Eiler and mm-hmm. then from State Senator Bill Rabin. Uh, Rabin's attempt was successful, passed into law, mm-hmm. that uh, severely curtailed Leland's ability to do this and kind of hemmed in how far out they could kind of reach. Because you can kind of leapfrog out. Right. It doesn't automatically have to be a contiguous property. Uh, so it hemmed in how far they could leapfrog out and basically made it clear you cannot force someone to join the town of Leland by saying, hey, you want water and sewer. Right. No, no quid pro quo or, you know, basically holding something back if they don't. And I'm not accusing Leland of doing that. However, that has been discussed. Um, it, it It's a very, very open secret. I mean, that that people are being enticed to to join the town of Leland and uh, whether it's on their own, you know, their own free will because they want those extra services or not, um, not really up to to us to decide. When it's voluntary, it's private property rights. You do what you want to do. Um, If you want to join the town of Leland, fine. My my bigger question, and I did reach out to this uh, aspiring town of Winnebo, uh, did not get a response. My thing is, if you are so concerned about this annexation, which seems unlikely right now but it could happen yeah and that was dale falwell's kind of opinion on this is that at the moment it doesn't seem like they're in grave danger of being gobbled up by leland but even if they were even if they were at that risk um it would not be able to pass through involuntary annexation it would have to be voluntary um because again you have to put it on a referendum you have to get a large majority i think 75 percent of the people living there have to vote in support of it unlikely to happen. I'm not sure it's ever happened since the laws changed regarding involuntary annexation in 2011-2012. So my question is this, though, for the aspiring town of Winnebo and the people there, and please reach out to us, reach out to Ben, reach out to myself. Um, What's the difference? If you're going to incorporate, what's the difference? You're going to be paying more taxes. But with Leland, you will be having established services at a minimum, whereas if you try and incorporate yourself, yes, you become part of the town of Leland. I, what's in a name? I guess it's important to people. Um, I understand that. I understand, you know, home and location. But the logistics of it to me, I am a pragmatist. I just, I don't understand why you would, if, if you're going to incorporate out of fear of incorporation, um, it just seems like a, a kind of a strange argument to me. Yeah, I heard one Winnebo resident describe this as joining the Air Force to avoid being drafted by the Army. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I guess the arguments would be that some folks would prefer the devil you know or would actually like to, as, you, as you're alluding to, uh, to maintain the name of Winnebo. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is just an interesting phenomenon of sometimes called census-designated areas, Mm -hmm. like Castlehane, like Hampstead, like Winnebo, where people have a sense of community and belonging and home, but in a a technical sense, there is no Winnebo as a a municipal unit. There Mm -hmm. is no Castlehane. There is no Hampstead. 
So I can understand that. Um, but I think, yeah, when it comes down to the actual operational brass tax, you will be paying more taxes, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know anyone who loves. Um, no. And I don't, it's not clear what you would get um, other than the name that you wouldn't get from Leland. So I think that's kind of where that is. Yeah, taxes. Taxes. <laughs> uh, all right, so almost time to go, but real quick, I wanted to do a follow-up from last week's podcast mm-hmm. when we were talking about uh, allegations that Nelson Bollier stole a sign. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked to the district attorney to uh, really get at one lingering question, which was, you know, Ben David and his office have recused him- themselves from a number of recent high-profile investigations uh, involving public figures. Mm-hmm. So. Most notably, obviously, would be Julia Olson Bozeman. And uh, some of the conversation was on was on background. Um, So I just want to give you the broad strokes here. One is that when it comes to Bozeman uh, in particular, one, she's the chair of the county, Mm -hmm. which specifically funds certain uh, staff in the district attorney's office. So there's a a direct conflict of interest. She's also an attorney. Uh, who Ben David staff have uh, tried cases against in the past. Mm-hmm. So just a lot of potential conflict, appearance of conflict, more than enough to get over that hurdle of, hey, we should recuse ourselves. Right. The other notable is the situation was the um, a series of investigations, uh, some still ongoing, into the New Hanover County School District. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no funding situation there, but there is allegations made against members of the sheriff's office yep. who work closely with Ben David's office, um, and in one specific case, the actual the initial complaint, I believe this was for the Peter Michael Frank case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the complaint was originally filed with someone in his office, right. um, and that was his rationale for saying, "Hey, we got to kick this to the SBI um, and state prosecutors." So, when it comes to stuff like this, um, which again, not afraid to say, is pretty petty stuff. We would be talking about the least severe crime you commit. This is the lowest rank of misdemeanor. Right. Um, this is the this is the most unserious criminal thing you can do while still being criminal. Yes. Um, because the stakes are so low, the the stakes for recusal are, are, are pretty low. Like mm-hmm. you don't, there's not, this isn't like the fate of the county swinging in the balance. Right. And also Ben Davis' office has looked at numerous cases involving this kind of thing, these kinds of allegations, you know, monkeying with signs, yelling at people at the polls around elections, involving both Democratic and Republican candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I think of what happened with Derek Hickey and his alleged employee, John Christian Anderson. I believe that was 2016. Uh, There was issues with Joe Cena, Mm -hmm. who was, I believe, a New Hanover County Sheriff's deputy and and ran for office in Penner County. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, David's office has a track record of, of doing these. And every single time I have seen some allegations that this is corruption, um, you know, because you've got a, a Democratic elected official, mm-hmm. Ben David, looking at the, you know, candidates in campaigns. But I've never seen anyone come forward with any serious evidence um, for that kind of stuff, for the, mm-hmm. you know, the sign stealing and sign moving. Right. That there was real, that there was a, a palpable conflict of interest. And all that said, you know, the one notable exception that comes to mind was the 2019 case against Republican Surf City Councilman Jeremy Sugertz. And not to get into the whole case here, but there was some charges, uh, felony charges, that he had moved without updating his address. It was never clear what benefit he could have rendered. At one point, a prosecutor from Ben Davis' office went to a campaign rally uh, for uh, a Democratic candidate in that same race. And so there was a clear conflict of interest. Um, and in that case, Ben David's office recused himself. So people bring that up all the time. But worth noting that 
however you feel about what went down with that, Ben Davis' office did recuse himself from that. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, leave people's signs alone. For the love of God. I am comfortable stating that opinion. Leave these people's signs alone. You don't have to agree with them. I don't care. It is their right. Unless they are on private property that they put it on your land, leave them alone. Yeah, to be clear, if someone puts a 49-square-foot yard <laughs> sign, which is just under the legal limit, in your front yard, by all means, take it down. That's your yard. You do what you want. But in general, um, look, the the studies show uh, these things don't move the needle all that much. Yeah. Um, and unless you were just a committed and possibly delusional person, you're never going to get them all. There's just so many. So just leave them, leave them be, guys. Uh, and that was kind of Ben David's statement, too, which was that, you know, while Nelson Bollier, what he did didn't rise to the level of a prosecutable crime. Right. Which means there could be criminal activity here, but there's a there's a poor chance that it would be successfully prosecuted. Right. That's kind of the razor's edge that DAs have to walk all the time. Yeah, exactly. At the social level, you should not do this. Yeah. I mean, this is this is perhaps the dumbest part of democracy, but it is still part of democracy. And we've got to respect it. We're going to get hate mail for saying that, but. I think uh, I think that's a good place to leave it. Remember, you have until November 5th to do early voting, and then uh, Election Day is next Tuesday. So make sure you go out there, vote, and leave people's signs alone. Yeah. All right. We'll see you next week. See you then.